Before we start, if you're enjoying these conversations, please make sure that you like or subscribe to Cleaning Up. It really helps other people to find us. Cleaning Up is brought to you by the Liebreich Foundation and the Gilardini Foundation. Hello, I'm Michael Liebreich and this is Cleaning Up. My guest today is Patrick Greichen. He's Secretary of State at the German Ministry for the Economy and Climate Action and former Executive Director of Agora Energiewende. That's the leading German think tank behind the famous Energiewende. So please join me in welcoming Patrick Greichen to Cleaning Up. So, Minister Greichen, Patrick, how great to see you. Great to see you, Michael. I'm glad to be here. I'm trying to remember when we last met uh, in person, and it would have been before the pandemic, of course, and actually quite far before it. I think it might even have been 2017 when we sat down at one of your Agora Energy Vendor conferences. And actually, I think you interviewed me. That, I believe, was the last time that we met face to face. Yes, exactly. And uh, you were telling the German audience uh, that uh, it better get its, its grip together on uh, electric cars. Otherwise, uh, we're going to lose this industry. I remember that very well. That's right. It's very interesting that the um, at, at that time, there was still a kind of rearguard action being fought to protect the internal combustion engine and so on. And there's a, you know, we'll get on to, no doubt, uh, the, the German car industry and its attempts still to uh, espouse hydrogen and other solutions. Uh, but you have now moved from the world of being the leading think tank, the Agora Energiewende, there's a clue there, you were providing the analysis, the forecasting, uh, the intellectual basis for the energy vendor. Um, and now you are a minister. It, and um, of course, all those reports where you said, we must do this and the government must do that. That's now you, isn't it? Yeah, well, when I entered here into office and the German term is state secretary, so it's, it's more the vice minister, uh, but uh, there was a journalist saying, uh, we've never seen a state secretary where we can so much compare his announcements with his policy. And we'll see what comes up in 100 days, because he already put out what the government needs to be doing in the first 100 days. Well, that's right. And in fact, you know, I have been going through looking at a few old Agora Energiewende reports, um, because they presumably give a clue to what we're likely to see, although I suspect that you have other stakeholders around the cabinet table that will be pushing back in various ways. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, of course, uh, we have a coalition treaty, which uh, gives us uh, a lot of uh, um, uh, push. But on the other hand, um, there's still so much that needs to be sorted out. And then you have uh, uh, coalition partners that have different views. Uh, we're in the midst of that. Right. And we are also in an extraordinary time so with the war on Ukraine, Russia's uh, aggression against Ukraine ongoing as we record this, and that changes a lot of things. So in a way, that might be another reason why what you said last year is not necessarily what you're going to do this year, because um, it seems to me sitting in London that there's a very substantial rethinking of German energy policy going on as we speak. Is that a fair observation? Yes and no. Uh, it, it no, because um, what is good for the energy transition is also good uh, for making us independent of Russian imports. So more renewables, more energy efficiency, electrification, 
and green hydrogen as the four key pillars uh, is a, a way to reduce carbon, but it's also a way to reduce our import dependency from Russia. Yes, there is an additional element that has now come to it, and that is the diversification. Uh, I mean, we were really dependent on Russian imports, 50% uh, coal, 50% uh, gas, 35% uh, oil. That's our import quota from Russia uh, in the beginning of this year. Um, and, and now we are gradually trying to get other uh, sources. Uh, and that has come on top of the table. Uh, and that is really uh, the new element of uh, February 24th. Right. And, you know, we'll we'll come back, I think, and examine this proposition that um, the situation in Ukraine only accelerates the transition because there are some short term and some long term uh, implications of that. But before we do that, um, you are working right now on a package of policies. The, the, I think it's been called the, uh, the Easter package. The Austin packet or something Oster along packet. those lines. Yeah. Do you want to just outline that? Uh, give us the short version of what that is going to, what it includes, because that's working its way through the legisl legislative system right now. Exactly. And uh, that uh, is basically what we prepared from day one once we came into office in mid of December. Uh, and that is uh, basically focusing on ramping up renewables. Uh, so we have now a new target that is 80% uh, renewable share in the power mix by 2030 uh, and uh, putting everything in place that needs uh, to be done to get there. So we have now uh, ramped up auction volumes for wind offshore, wind onshore and solar PV to numbers like, you know, 20 gigawatts solar per year, uh, where you can really uh, become a bit uh, uh, nervous about. But uh, that's now our target, and that's what we will implement as of uh, next year. Um, and uh, the same applies to wind onshore and wind offshore. Um, plus, you need grids for that. So we put additional grids into uh, the law. And uh, uh, the third key element is, in essence, um, to fasten up and speed up the permitting process for all of this. So that's the real challenge. That's something we are now preparing uh, so that that comes uh, in May to cabinet. And then uh, we have uh, kind of the Easter and the Pentecost package. Uh, uh, and uh, then uh, if all goes well and uh, heavens above are behind us, then we get that through by summer uh, through parliament. So that is in essence the, the idea to really get the renewables up and running. And in the summer, just to conclude there, uh, the efficiency package is to come to the cabinet uh, so that we reduce our energy demand, which is, of course, the second key element. Right. And there's also a heat package. Now, is that part of the energy efficiency package or is that something yes. completely different? No, that's essentially there. So that's basically all about reducing energy demand, but also about uh, switching uh, basically to renewables in the heating sector. Um, uh, in essence, uh, uh, this will be now the heat pump revolution for Germany. And we uh, have been laggards here, uh, and we now want to come up uh, to uh, the close up to the Scandinavians, which were really front runners here. Um, so as of 2024, any new 
boiler in Germany, any new heating system needs to have at least 65% renewable share. And that will, in effect, mean um, almost always you go into the heat pump uh, 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 solution. Now, is that also for retrofits? That's not just new build. Yes. That's also for retrofits. That's the key of it. And uh, it'll mean, in essence, last year we had some 130,000 heat pumps installed in Germany. The overall uh, um, heating system demand in Germany per year is some 800, 900,000. So uh, in essence, we're talking about increasing the heat pump market fourfold, fivefold within the next 18 months. Um, and that is a key challenge. I mean, our uh, industry wasn't prepared for that, I know. But uh, I mean, that's now what they need to ramp up in the next 18 months. Right. But there's the industry. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's nice to see you taking the supply, you know, the supply side uh, concerns first. But, you know, if you have somebody whose boiler packs up, that's it, done, need to replace it, they are going to be told, unless you can find a renewable energy gas, you have to replace it with a heat pump, which we know is considerably more expensive in the capital cost, and it might require other changes to the fabric of the building. How are you going to navigate that? You're now on the political side, you can't just sit there and say, this needs to be done and the people just need to suck it up or whatever. You've got to solve that problem, have you not? Well, yeah, Michael, welcome to my world. Um, uh, and it's exactly that. Uh, so the combination will be, uh, how do we uh, um, subsidize a heat pump so that it's not too expensive for households? Uh, and uh, of course, uh, it is about um, finding ways so that we have uh, all the installation uh, and, and the plumbers and everything uh, that, that we need for that. Uh, and then maybe we'll need uh, some sort of rule that if there is no heat pump available and no one, then you have another half year or so. But, um, but, but in essence, this is about really uh, uh, thinking it backwards. And in 2045, we need to be carbon neutral. That's the law. So any new uh, uh, um, uh, heating installer will last 20 years. So anything that you build after 2024 has to have carbon neutrality in mind. That's the logic behind it. Uh, and now it's about uh, really uh, getting that through. And this summer will be hot uh, in order to get uh, actors behind that goal. And I think we need to give a little bit of context of some of those constraints. And there's been two in particular that I find fascinating. Well, three, we've talked about the supply side um, and, and you, know, you seem to have concerns about whether there are enough manufacturers of heat pumps. Um, we've also got the supply side on solar panels, particularly where Germany having invested hundreds of billions of euros has ended up with no manufacturers of note uh, of solar panels. The second thing I'd like to talk about is the planning acceleration that's uh, required, because the last few years have not been bonanza years for wind, particularly wind installations. And you have some very difficult rules to do with the spatial, you know, where you're allowed to build a wind farm and how far from a, a habitation. You're going to have to change quite a lot there. And then the third one that you've mentioned is um, the training, have we got enough plumbers and so on. So maybe we can talk about those three constraints, which at this point seem pretty daunting. I mean, this is what these three, I believe, are really the reasons why 
German, you know, the energy vendor has effectively slowed down in the last, you know, almost a decade now. Yes, and that is the challenge. Uh, and, and, and they have kind of, uh, uh, also because of the policy of the past years, um, established themselves at a low level uh, in all uh, the whole value chain. And now what we want is basically to increase the whole value chain three to fourfold in solar, in wind, in heat pumps, in electric cars, in, in everything that we know are the key technologies of the energy transition. And that's, that's in essence the challenge, uh, not so much changing the law and putting higher auction volumes in there. Um, so it is, part of it is talking to industry and telling them this is real, invest now. And I could, sometimes I'm really astonished that they don't believe that this is now what's going to happening. I mean, if you look at the European laws, I mean, it, it's very clear that that's the direction of travel for everyone uh, out there. Um, uh, and then the second thing is we need to also speed up uh, the processes, uh, the permitting processes and how the distances you were talking about. Uh, the, the question is how, how, how many birds does one have to observe for how long in order to get that uh, nature conservation uh, permit? Um, and that's everything basically for the next four weeks on my table. So uh, uh, we're really uh, trying to push everything that needs to be done through the next uh, six months to parliament. Uh, and that is in essence uh, uh, why I'm here. Right. Now, let, let's take the, the first of my sort of chosen three constraints, though, the supply chain. Um, I am uh, an advisor to the UK Board of Trade, which was set up in the 17th century to regulate a trade uh, with, at the time, um, Britain's colonies and plantations and so on. And I can assure anybody listening, that is not what we do now. Not at all. In fact, it was got rid of during the years that the UK was in the EU because there was no independent trade policy. Uh, and now it's back and I'm on that august body. And one of the things that I, uh, I, I believe that trade is vital to reduce the costs of clean energy solutions and, to, and transportation solutions and to accelerate the transition. Um, but there's a lot of pressure in the world for local content rules and to capture local parts of the, or to capture parts of the value chain locally to justify, you know, the, the population is not always 100% behind every single measure of the energy vendor or net zero transition, let's just put it that way. And so the jobs are very important. Are we going to see either at the German level or the EU level, a, a, a local content push um, that that will, I believe, ultimately harm the transition? Well, um, uh, I don't think we'll have some sort of local content rules anywhere. But what I do see is a, a type of reshoring discussion uh, because of uh, the war, in essence, and also because of uh, the discussions uh, that we're currently having, how much do we want to rely on China. Uh, so uh, in essence, it is about, uh, we, we've basically relied on, there's everything available at the world market. Uh, now we kind of uh, see, well, maybe uh, on coal, oil and gas, we were a bit uh, uh, dependent on Russia. And then we find out, 
also for cables uh, the german car industry now has a problem because those were manufactured in the ukraine uh, and we all know about the chip uh, issue uh, out of uh, china so um i think that's rather coming back in terms of industrial policy uh, we want more of that to be produced let's say at least in the free world uh, uh, and not so much maybe a german uh, uh, discussion yeah there's a wonderful word that i've heard i don't know who came up with it but it seems absolutely brilliant which is called friendshoring <laughs> yes i think that is the discussion that we'll have uh, and and also uh, not to put too many eggs in one basket right but when you say that how confident are you i mean you germany appears to be waking up from a sort of 20 year maybe even a 25 year fever dream where it became so reliant on russia for you know, one third of germany's energy across coal gas oil i think it's one third maybe even more comes from russia and if you really wanted to be friendshored and resilient in your supply chains that is wrenching change i mean the chips from Thai, from um uh from taiwan the cables from ukraine obviously you're going to have to sort out but the reliance on on china it, it's just an enormous challenge it's probably i'm going to guess 20 or 30% of the german economy would need to be sort of rewired and rerouted and that's without even starting to think about food security or, or agricultural commodities or whatever so it's probably a bigger number than that are you really doing that you're perfectly right in the sense that basically we were very much relying on uh that uh notion of uh free trade free global trade uh uh will solve it and we as an export nation are, of course we're always uh, also counting on that um when it comes to our, our exports so we had kind of the same approach when it came to our imports um and i think the question that now comes here is that suddenly there's geopolitics and to be honest germany was never really good at geopolitics uh and 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 i think that, that is now only evolving uh, i can't tell you where we're ending up but i mean for example we never had a law obliging that we have a gas storage uh, high enough so that we don't uh, fear that it's cold in the winter and then we ended up uh, uh, finding out that uh, there were gas storages that were owned by gasprom and that they were empty at the beginning of this winter looking back we know why um and uh, we never had resource uh, uh, kind of stocks that we would uh, prepare ourselves for times when there was suddenly resource shortages because we were all saying okay the market will deliver so i think it's that type of thinking uh, not so much um uh, relying on uh, uh, every value chain and every um uh, just in time delivery but rather thinking about stockpiles and uh, uh more resilience uh, that will now shape the coming years in germany so this is fascinating because um you you described how you know germany put its faith in the global trade system and globalization of supply chains and is now having to rethink that um and one 
thing that I, what I'm trying to establish or trying to get my head around is, is this going to be a permanent change or does the situation in Ukraine resolve itself? Maybe some tensions with China resolve themselves and we all go back to the fever dream years of being dependent. And so that's kind of question. That's the first half of a question. Um, and I guess, you know, the, well, maybe I should maybe I should sort of leave it there and, and see whether you think it will lapse back or whether this is a permanent change in priorities. I do think it will be a permanent change insofar as we now more need to talk about stockpiling and less about uh, just in time delivery. So that if there is a shakeup of global supply chains, there is the opportunity to adapt. Uh, and uh, that may be not really uh, the harsh answer saying we don't rely on global trade anymore, but it's uh, back to, I don't, I'd, I'd say uh, what uh, the status quo was some 20, 25 years ago when uh, uh, the firms had their stocks uh, nearby uh, uh, and didn't just rely on the streets. Um, and, and maybe one second thing might be though that is lasting. And that is, um, I don't think relationships with Russia will uh, go back to the uh, um, uh, level before February 24 anytime soon. Um, and that will mean we are entering a world of high prices, uh, high coal, oil and gas prices. And that does have a huge effect, both on the energy transition, but also on the German economic model. I mean, we are kind of living off cheap Russian gas, uh, our energy intensive industry. And how do we answer uh, that? Um, uh, and my personal uh, view would be, let's speed up uh, our transition into green hydrogen. Um, uh, but that is a discussion we now need to have over the coming weeks. Right. So, Because um, I was going to kind of wait until you'd finished, but you actually made the point that I wanted to make, which is this is very inflationary. So you keep a stockpile, you're a manufacturer, somebody has to pay for that stockpile. Um, you lose flexibility and service and all sorts of other things as well, but, but it's inflationary. And then also excluding certain types of certain producers or certain um, energy producers from the list of approved suppliers is also inflationary. So we are now, are we not looking at unwinding 25 years of low inflation and you know, what is the what is the policy response to that how do we um, deal with the fact that people are going to be really hurting to meet their energy bills for a few years but now what we're saying is oh by the way that's the new normal the energy prices the prices of a washing machine of a car of what are they never going to go all the way back down because we've all got to price in the, um, the, the, the resilience, as it were. Well, yes. Uh, um, I mean, it doesn't mean that you have permanent inflation, but you, well, you have a, a higher level. Yeah, exactly. And in yeah. a way, I mean, others were paying that price. For example, our Polish neighbors, they were heavily investing into LNG and they paid it and bought it on the world market, even though it was a lot more expensive than Russian gas. And that was in a way in geopolitical insurance premium 
that the Polish right. society was willing to pay. Uh, and we in Germany never did. So that's why we don't have an LNG terminal, because it was never economic to do that. And, uh, and I think that's the new element of it, uh, that uh, in essence, geopolitics and also ensuring yourself uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, defense policy. Now, we're, we're back in the 80s in a way. Right. And in fact, one of our early guests on cleaning up coined a great phrase. This was um, Roger Dennis, who's a futurologist based in New Zealand. Um, and he said that resilience looks expensive, you know, sort of before something happens and very cheap afterwards. <laughs> it's, it... Yes, exactly. I mean, that's what insurance is about. Right. Um, but the other question, the second half of my two-parter, which I'll come on to now, is does that also not mean that the state is going to be much more present in our economic life, telling people to have an LNG terminal, telling Robert Bosch to keep more chips for its whatever it's making for the, the automotive sector? Uh, you want to buy an AEG washing machine, AEG is going to have to be um, told to keep stockpiles of whatever it is that it's buying from, from, from whether it's from Taiwan or from uh, even the you know, Eastern Central Europe. Isn't this just a recipe for a lot more state involvement, particularly, obviously, in energy? Well, energy has always been shaped by uh, uh, governments and uh, state involvement. Uh, so in a way, uh, I, I, I mean, I, I, I kind of... Uh, don't accept that phrase that it was ever really uh, a free market like chocolate producing or something like that. Uh, it, it's just different forms of, uh, of regulating it. And now uh, we, we, we have two new paradigms and that is more resilience. And the second is uh, uh, um, basically carbon neutrality. And we need to adapt regulation for that. Um, I, I, I wouldn't, you know, I'm, maybe that's why I'm in government. I, I'm, I'm not afraid of uh, uh, having a more state involvement here, as long as we're talking about efficiency and efficient outcomes as the ultimate goal. We may not be in the same place on the spectrum in terms of faith in government. Of course, since I'm speaking to you, I have enormous faith in government to make the right choices. But that faith uh, I couldn't place in all government officials that I've ever met. Um, but... I, let me come back to this question of priorities and let me postulate that Germany's priority stack before, let's go, let's go back a year, before including perhaps even Glasgow COP26, the number one top priority was the nuclear shutdown. And we know that because nuclear was shut before coal. So it must be nuclear before climate before cost, because fundamentally Germany was quite wealthy and there were costs and they were being passed on to people with some very high electricity prices. And in last place, as we've already established, was the security issue, what I call the fever dream of reliance on Russia. So that was the stack. Shut nuclear, then climate, then cost, and then worry about security. And what we're saying now is that that has flipped You've now got resilience and security pretty near to the top. Um, then, I don't know, how, can you put those four things in order? Is it now climate second or is it cost second? Um, and where does the nuclear shutdown sit? It seems to be a little bit fluid. 
I, I've never thought about that stack, and I would probably frame it differently. Um, basically, it's the old discussion whether or not there is a trade-off between climate and uh, nuclear. Uh, uh, and of course, uh, in a all, all things being equal world, Cetos Paribus, as uh, the economists would say, th that is the trade-off. Uh, in the German political context, that wasn't never the trade-off. The trade-off uh, was rather, um, there are climate targets, full stop, and are we going to uh, reach them with more nuclear or more renewables? Uh, and therefore, it was rather renewables and nuclear that were kind of uh, the, the, the discussions, uh, and that's where the, the environmental scene in Germany was very much on the renewable side. Um, so, but uh, where are we now? I'd say the nuclear issue is basically gone and decided. Uh, I know that there were questions, why don't we prolong those three nuclear power plants that we still have online um, over the end of this year? Uh, at the end of, uh, we really looked into that, uh, but um, those are old ones. Uh, we, the last time we did a security check for them was 2009. Normally, one has to do a, a thorough security check every 10 years. And the 2019 one was omitted because in 2022, it would be over anyhow. So we need to do a thorough security check for them if we don't want to compromise on security issues. And we don't. Uh, and then uh, they would be off uh, for, I don't know, 12 months uh, uh, anyhow. And that's when we, they might have been of any help. Um, and since our real issue is gas, they wouldn't have been of any uh, much help anyhow, because uh, the, the gas that we still have in the power system is CHP. So we need to find basically solutions for the heat. So that maybe is a quick excourse to the nuclear issue. I, what I'm trying to do, and that's my, my 24 hours per day, is that security resilience and climate are not in an either or, but we're pushing both at the same time. The good news is I don't see contradictions there. The bad news is the day only has 24 hours. And what do I do with my time? What does my staff do with its time? And are we allocating now our efforts and time into the uh, diversification and don't have that time to push the renewables and efficiency and electrification agenda. And that's where I see the risk, not only for us, but also for others. You only have so much, uh, uh, basically, capacity and resources. And if we divert that now, then uh, we lose uh, traction. Patrick, I want to come back to this question about whether climate and security are truly in lockstep or whether there are conflicts between those two. Because the current situation we have, the war in Ukraine, um, and at the moment, as we speak, for all the headlines about what, Europe, what the EU is sending to Ukraine, the UK, Germany, the US, all this uh, military aid, humanitarian aid, financial aid, the fact is it's dwarfed by the amount of money that the EU and even just Germany alone, is sending to Russia every day for oil and gas. And you know, it just strikes me that if the words never again mean something, 
they don't mean never again, but starting in 2025, they surely mean never again. Even if there's a social sacrifice, maybe people have to have colder homes, or maybe there's a recession and industry suffers. But is there not a strong argument for an absolutist approach that says, come Christmas, or even today would be good, no more gas? And I think gas is the issue. You know, oil, uh, the EU is already working on. I believe Germany is, is in accord with that. Um, Hungary, of course, being difficult, as we know, but we will be off oil because we can buy that anywhere in the world and put it on a tanker. But gas is the problem because it's delivered by pipeline. But that doesn't mean you can't just turn the valve, shut the pipeline. You could. Yes, uh, that is, of course, the difficult question. And uh, I mean, you're right. One could, and that's a heated debate uh, between German economists, uh, what the effects would really be for the German economy. Um, and uh, the thing is, it goes from that's doable to that would be an economic disaster uh, for years. Uh, and the, the problem, of course, for us in government is as long as we're not sure what happens, uh, uh, let's rather be... Uh, a, a bit more cautious. Now, what we're doing is trying to diversify as soon as possible, and that's why we now speed up LNG terminals, uh, floating ones to uh, come to our shore, and the first ones should be in place by this winter. So the idea is, and that's where everything, uh, uh, my, my efforts are going into, is that within 24 months, we can get off Russian gas. Um, not within the end of this year, I'm afraid. And if one would want that, one would need to basically buy, uh, I think, a very deep recession uh, uh, and, and be able to hold that through for two years or so. But isn't that the price Germany, in a sense, needs to pay? Or, or isn't it appropriate to pay that price for what has effectively been catastrophically bad energy policy. I mean, you, why is it a necessity that Germany should emerge from this um, fever dream period of reliance on Russia? And by the way, also, you know, what I would consider to be mistakes in the energie vendor, shutting nuclear instead of shutting coal and, and so on. Why would it be a requirement that this should be painless? Well, it's not, a, it's not going to be painless. Uh, what we are living through currently is price increases on uh, gas that uh, we've never seen before, and the same on electricity. So uh, we now have basically fourfold increase in wholesale market prices on gas and wholesale market prices on electricity. And that will carry through to customers within the next months, uh, and then uh, we, we will face the situation that a lot of firms will say uh, uh, we, we will reduce production that is reliant on gas, and a lot of households will say we, we can't afford that anymore, and, and, and how do we uh, go forward? So that is already, I would say, a huge challenge, and very few have already understood what this will mean uh, throughout the year. Plus, LNG will be more expensive. Now, where we are reluctant is, okay, that, let's not only take that, let's take a deep recession of minus 6% uh, for two years, 
and that's more or less what I would expect would will happen. Uh, and uh, you know, it'll be the same. I would say with UK, this is not a German issue here. This is uh, the question for all of Europe. Um, are we going to uh, basically go through this um, with a very deep recession for the next two years? Now, this is frustrating. I'm not going to uh, try to, uh, to, to to basically uh, try to um, make it brighter as it is. Um, but when we think about what can we really do for the Ukraine, then I think military assistance and helping them to re store their uh, uh, their life within their borders and helping up uh, a new infrastructure that is hopefully already uh, directed into the clean energy future. I would say that's what we need to do. Uh, and that's where the priorities should go alongside with getting out of Russian imports within as soon as possible within the next 24 months. But, you know, the risk of making you feel very uncomfortable when your, your finance minister, Christian Lindner, said, we have to be patient. I mean, we have to be patient. Is that, should the people in, you know, <clears throat> uh, under occupation by Russia, should just we be patient? I'm, I, I mean, patient is not actually what I am, uh, because this is really 24-7 trying to get uh, LNG and trying to, uh, increase everything uh, when it comes to uh, energy efficiency and electrification so we reduce our gas demand. Um, so uh, that that's not the issue. I think the issue is rather um, what is best and uh, uh, having supporting the Ukraine by probably giving a very deep recession to all over Europe over the next two years. I don't think that that is really best. Right. But, but, but what about um, just burn more coal in the short term, right? Because that's I mean, that's what we'll do. I mean, are you running all existing, all coal-fired power stations that have not been demolished yet? Are you running them flat out? Uh, well, I mean, seven? I'm not running coal-fired power station. That's uh, the market who decides that. Now, we already have that effect because of gas prices being so high that uh, gas power stations are now in the merit order uh, behind uh, coal power stations. Where we, of course, still have gas in the power system is in the CHP plants because of their heat uh, supplies. And what I'm currently preparing is a, a type of uh, uh, legislation to uh, basically uh, uh, redesign the intensive for those CHP power plants. And that would, uh, that's the, the biggest option to really reduce gas demand uh, in the short term to get it uh, as uh, much as possible out of uh, the energy sector. Um, and, but of course, we also have path dependency here. I mean, <coughs> all existing coal-fired power stations, um, we will keep online. Uh, but uh, uh, you won't. You don't have uh, coal power stations everywhere uh, to switch to uh, when you have a gas CHP uh, uh, operating unit. But having said all that, that's important for the for the listeners that are interested in the clean energy transition. This is not to shy away from the coal exit 2030. Not at all. Coal uh, phase out 2030 is part of our coalition treaty, and that is uh, what we will be doing. Uh, the essence is really about 
what do we do with the next 24 months? And there, uh, unfortunately, uh, um, some re-operating uh, uh, of coal power plants will be part of the issue. Okay, so let's come back to the kind of me medium term and longer term. And thank you for responding. And I, I you know, pushed you quite hard on, on that question. But I'm going to push you hard on another question, which is actually the energy vendor. And, you know, and, and I'm going to say you started it because you said it's the same in the UK. And of course, it's not the same in the UK. The energy vendor, the transition, the UK is actually quite far ahead of Germany to everybody's surprise, no doubt. Uh, and maybe a little bit of shame in Germany for all the energy vendor, you've got double the energy intensity per kilowatt hour in your electricity. Um, we've gone faster. We'll be shutting down all coal by 2025. We're almost off it entirely. And I would argue that we did a big chunk of that by keeping our nuclear going. But on a lot of fronts, um, having the carbon price floor uh, which was an innovation completely unexpected, by the way, on this side of the channel of under um, David Cameron uh, and George Osborne. There's been a number of policies, and by the way, many of them now being copied by Germany, such as contracts for difference rather than feed-in tariffs. So, you know, is there also a re-reckoning now that you're in power and you're determined to accelerate the transition, you know, why not just copy what the UK is doing, right? <laughs> so, Michael, I mean, the, the last time I had discussions with UK colleagues uh, some 10 years ago, they were telling me nuclear CCS and maybe a little bit of renewables, that's the future. I said, Fox, it's wind and solar, forget the rest. Now, the thing is, we had a bad government the past four years, not focusing on wind and solar, and the UK really did their grips on wind. I, I'm impressed, I have to say. And when I look at wind offshore in the UK, I kind of think, wow, we should have been doing that as well. I mean, 40 gigawatts by 2030, that's, uh, that's a word. And, uh, uh, and, and everything uh, that has been accelerated on the renewable side in the past years is really impressive. So um, uh, uh, let's, in essence, uh, the question of, what has happened in the past four or five years and there UK got its act together and we didn't. Now uh, we need to speed up again so that uh, it's kind of a, a race to the sky. Um, and what I've, what I've put into the law is a carbon neutral power system by 2035 as a target, which is the same as the UK target actually. Um, uh, so um, I think that's where we're both heading. Um, and uh, uh, the question that really comes with it, uh, I think, is uh, are we prepared for everything that needs to come with it? And there I see challenges both on both sides. Um, when I look at the heat pump discussion, I don't think the UK is very far ahead uh, uh, from Germany. So there we both need to. Electric cars is also on both sides uh, now, 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 now at the phase where we need to accelerate. Um, and, and, and then the whole uh, hydrogen discussion, uh, where to put the electrolysis and what to use the hydrogen for. There have also been discussions about the hydrogen, what is it, valley, uh, 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 and uh, uh, where I'd say, don't put that stuff into heating, where uh, there was discussions in the UK to put that, the same in Germany, uh, and, and where I'm basically ending that discussion here in Germany saying, Fox, it's never going to go into heating boilers, forget that. So 
I, I'd say the interesting thing is we are now very uh, closing up uh, uh, the UK and Germany on this with the one difference that you still build new nuclears, which I think is the most expensive way to, to produce electricity. But uh, every country has its uh, peculiarities. Okay. Um, I'm really looking forward to this phase of our conversation. There's a lot there. And on heating, you know, if you'd say Scandinavia, maybe Sweden is, I don't know, let's call it eight out of 10, nine out of 10, then maybe Germany is a five and I would happily concede that the UK is a two and the conversation about hydrogen that we're still having actually has been quite nicely finessed in the UK's hydrogen strategy last year uh, although there was talk about hydrogen in heating maybe three million homes by 2035 the number by 2030 is pitifully small I mean it's a few pilots it's 60,000 homes I think 67,000 so it's essentially saying we're not going to do it for 10 years and frankly, we'll probably not do it ever. But instead of saying that explicitly, it was a kind of finessing in order not to have the entire industry and all of the you know, Global Warming Policy Foundation and Net Zero Watch and the whole of the kind of, um, the, all, all of these you know, sort of fringe elements piling in. So it's very cleverly done, but I would concede Germany uh, you know, on, on heating. Um, but the big area, you say we're converging, but and you call out nuclear as the only difference. It's not the only difference, but you have really tied your, your, your sail to the mast, tied, I'm not quite sure what the phrase is. You have gone for 80% renewable electricity by 2030. And I guess I have two questions that I want to ask. One is, how do you deal with the famous Dunkelflaute? or as I call it, the dark doldrums, those periods of you know, one, two, three weeks when there's very low wind, and they may come at the end of a six-month period of low wind, when whatever storage, whatever batteries you've got you know, are, are, are anyway run down. And the second question is, if you just do the numbers, you just look at the amount of energy demand, I'm not, not primary energy, I'm talking about energy services that Germany needs to be an advanced industrial nation, you are going to have to keep importing. Doing renewables does not mean doing renewables within the German border only. You're going to have to do something else. So can we speak about those two things, the resilience and the Dunkelflaute, and where are you and how are you going to import the energy needed for the German way of life and the German economy. Now, uh, what do we do in those two, three weeks when there's uh, neither wind nor sun? Um, in essence, in an 80% world, that's where the 20% gas is. Uh, and uh, that needs to be hydrogen ready gas fired power stations that we then gradually swift uh, to green hydrogen. So uh, uh, whenever a new gas-fired power station will be built and we will need them because of the coal phase out. Um, that needs to be hydrogen ready. A, a thing where, we, where we're still in discussions with Siemens and ABB and, and, and everyone, uh, what that means. Um, uh, but it has to be very clear that that is the future uh, because as of 2030 onwards, uh, um, we will be phasing in green hydrogen into um, basically, the the power uh, system uh, there. Okay. So I'll come back with my question, but I'll let you continue for the moment. 
So the question then might be, where's the storage for the hydrogen? Well, we do have quite some gas storage sites, which then also need to be transformed uh, into a hydrogen storage sites. So, but that opens up the import issue because uh, we won't be producing that green hydrogen uh, in Germany in the amount necessary. That's really where uh, imports will be needed from all over the world. Um, and, and we would probably also import uh, a green electricity, uh, which means um, North Sea, Baltic Sea, we really need to get our grips together to have huge wind offshore projects there uh, that uh, then supply the region. Uh, and uh, uh, there are first projects uh, already planned. The Danish uh, are very much into uh, their, their so-called energy islands. Um, uh, same discussion in the Netherlands. And uh, they have more uh, wind uh, potential offshore than their uh, direct needs. So uh, that's where Germany will need to engage and become an importer of green electricity uh, from Northern Baltic Sea. Um, so that is, I think, what we will need to do uh, for the next eight years on top of getting our own uh, homegrown wind, solar uh, and offshore potentials uh, tap them uh, all at once. Right. And the, the volume of electricity needed, renewable energy, because now not only are you um, nailing your colors to the mast. There you go. I remembered the, the phrase. My English is improving. So not only are you nailing your colors to the mask of, the mast of renewable, um, you know, but, but, but you know, it is also um, got to be green. It mustn't be blue. So it's a huge amount of renewable electricity uh, that you need because you've also got to decarbonize fertilizer, you know, and so on and so yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael, that, 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 I mean, don't, don't, don't tell me about it. I know this is a huge challenge. And when we uh, uh, were calculating the renewables, uh, we uh, basically took into account that power demand will increase uh, uh, by 20% between now and 2030. So uh, I know this is a huge challenge. I'm not going to uh, uh, try to uh, water it down. But um, the question is really, um, is there an alternative? Well, but hang on, let me just push, if I might, let me push on that 20%. I'm going to do some back of envelope calculations. I know you're good at this as well, so you can push back. But you say 20% of power might be hydrogen, right? And that is one third the efficiency of just if you of, of, of that electricity. So because you have to go from electricity yeah. to hydrogen and back to power. So 20% equates to effectively pretty much an extra 50% of electricity generation, just there, just for that demand. You haven't decarbonized fertilizer, the chemical industry, all of the other uses of gas in industry you've not done anything with, and you've already added 50% to your electricity demand. Now, it may be overseas, maybe that 20%, maybe you resolve it by saying it's 20% increase in Germany, but you're effectively going to pretty much, I'm guessing, double Germany's electricity footprint in some way, shape or form? Well, yes, that's true for 2045. Um, uh, and, and, and basically, it's because of the imports needed on green hydrogen uh, on all accounts. No. Um, and then the question is really how much is European produced, wind offshore, 
North Sea, Baltic Sea, and uh, maybe also uh, in Spain, where you have full uh, whole uh, load hours uh, of wind and solar combined of some three to four thousand. And how much of it uh, comes from Australia, uh, the Arabic region, Namibia, and whatever? So uh, this is about establishing a new global energy uh, economy that is based on green hydrogen, green uh, uh, hydrogen deri derivatives. And uh, I think that's uh, where I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pointing at. It, we need in this, in this regard, clarity, technological clarity, and, but, not, and not trying to you know, uh, pull everything around. Now you were saying, what about blue hydrogen? Well, look, look, before With I get on to gas blue, prices, I don't believe in blue hydrogen no. at all anymore. I'm not. I, I, we're not going to close down our borders for that. So if if there's blue hydrogen coming from the UK or Norway, we'll take it. But uh, with these gas prices, green hydrogen is going to be cheaper. So we're back in the discussion from the very beginning. Do we have the supply chains to really ramp that up on a global scale? And if you believe in the 1.5 degree scenario of the IEA, it means basically one terawatt of wind and solar per year to be installed. And that's where we need to go at. Right. But look, the, on the gas prices, we, I think we could have an interesting conversation about why gas prices would not, at some point in the relatively near future, three years, five years, let's say, simply return to where they were. We could have a very interesting conversation about gas prices because your assumption is that they're staying high forever, or it appears to be. I would argue that in three or five years, there's no reason to believe gas prices wouldn't be back to where they were. Um, Russian gas may be headed east rather than west, but there'll still be an enormous potential oversupply of gas from the US, from uh, Australia, from Qatar, potentially again from Iran, and we'll be back in the era of low gas. I think assuming we won't be, to me, would be very dangerous. And but I'm not, I don't know if we want to follow. I mean, I'm happy if you want to follow that and we can debate it. But there's also, if you're postulating green hydrogen, particularly from offshore wind, with an energy co electricity cost of you know, 50 euros per megawatt hour around that. And you know, are you not worried that you will simply make German uh, industry uncompetitive, given that others will have solar power at one cent, wind power at one, one and a half cents per kilowatt hour, so $10 per megawatt hour. And industry doesn't have to stay in Germany. You could, particularly primary industry, chemicals and all of those associated uh, ceramics and so on. Isn't there just a risk that you're consigning Germany to very high electricity prices forever and that industry just says, well, do you know what? We will simply make this stuff overseas And, you know, we can fantasize about hydrogen coming in on an on a equivalent of an LNG carrier from Australia, you know, $1 per kilo hydrogen that will spend $5 per kilo getting to Northern Europe on a, on a ship. It's just not going to happen. We are going to be using North Sea oil, North, North Sea offshore wind, and maybe some Mediterranean rim solar. That's the only imports of either renewable electricity or hydrogen that we'll be able to afford. And even then, we probably won't be able to afford them. Well, 
That is indeed a huge challenge. And it's a challenge not only for Germany, but for the whole of Europe, in the sense that, of course, there are places uh, on this globe where you get electricity for one to two cents per kilowatt hour. Uh, and uh, then, in essence, it's about shipping costs uh, that decide uh, whether or not uh, those one to two cents are then uh, cheap in Europe as well or uh, expensive in Europe. Um, now, what does that mean for us? In essence, it will probably mean um, easy to copy uh, energy intensive industry might go to places where you have those one to two cents. Uh, energy intensive industry where it's about know-how, about skills, about uh, competitive advantages that have to do uh, uh, with more complicated products than just uh, uh, the simple ones, uh, that's then where we need to specialize. So, um, I mean, that's the old story of where is cheap energy and what type of industry is then located there where we have cheap energy and where is industry rather located near the customer because it profits from uh, being in direct contact with uh, the customer needs. Um, but, you know, if we go down that common neutrality route, that's what we have to face anyhow. I don't think that there is a difference uh, for all of us uh, in Europe on that question. I think that's a really interesting conversation because a lot of the energy modeling that I've done, that you've done, that you know, IEA does, that it's it's it takes as a given that energy demand kind of is what it is and it is where it is. But actually in 2050, 28 years time, that can change very dramatically. And I suspect that that's actually a much less modeled and much less researched uh, challenge. Yes. Uh, and of course, it's a topic where you don't really want to talk about that openly because it's about a uh, question of uh, competitiveness that comes uh, uh, with carbon neutrality. On the other hand, I mean, in a way, we are going to face that situation already now because yeah. high uh, fossil fuel prices that we now experience in Europe uh, will obviously also uh, pose the same challenge to energy intensive industries all over Europe. So right. uh, 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 we will have that discussion sooner than we thought. Uh, and uh, I think uh, what we now need to uh, get our grips around is, so what does that mean for a low carbon world? And where do we need to uh, specialize uh, when we now uh, think about the future investment in those industries? Patrick, I want to finish, if I might, with three um, questions around, I'm very open and, and, and forward about these things, three areas that I am working on where I have a not just a point of view, but potentially an interest that have not come up, but they're very relevant. Um, one is very relevant to this question of importing. I'm an investor in X-Links, and that is wind, solar, and batteries in Morocco being brought by a long undersea cable, high voltage DC, into the UK. So why import, why import hydrogen from electricity if you can just import electricity? So that's business model one. Um, business model two, we've had all this conversation without talking about geothermal. And I've been working with a startup called Ever, which is closed loop geothermal, no fracking, but not just ground source, 
and it could actually deliver the heat into those CHP systems, which are currently being kept on because uh, those gas systems that you have to keep on. And that strikes me as given the quality of the German geothermal resources, which are among the best in Europe, possibly only behind Italy and Iceland. Um, so that's business model two. And then uh, business model three is Germany is the only country in Europe that is meaningfully building hydrogen fueling stations uh, on its motorways, possibly for heavy vehicles. But who knows? I can't see much justification. So and I'm working on electrification, even of heavy vehicles and freight. So three three possible business models. Do you want to respond to any or, or all of those? Oh, yeah. A quick, quick, uh, quick remark fire. from yes, my side. Yes, because we're running out of yeah. time. Quick fire. Um, first of all, I mean, that Desert Tech issue never really got off because the question was, who is going to build that cable? Uh, and in the original model, uh, put it through Spain, France, and everything uh, when, when we wanted to have that uh, for Germany. Now, you, you're now doing it in the subsea. I guess there are lots of questions to be solved there as well. Uh, I'd just say, good luck. Pipelines, <laughs> Your building pipelines seems to be easier when it comes to long distances uh, uh, in terms of transport. But uh, from an efficiency perspective, I'm with you. Okay, I, I accept your good wishes for the project, and we'll uh, we'll I'll, we'll keep a watching brief and uh, see if it works. Right. Second geothermal. Now, um, I think it all hinges on the drilling costs, um, and and that's really the question: Are we somehow uh, able to to get down the drilling costs? And I know Elon Musk with his the boring company and. I don't know whatever has in terms of technology there. And, 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 and in a way, uh, this has been an industry where we didn't get the scaling up, really, because it's a very static industry, as far as I know. Um, and if we probably throw money at it so that the market grows, we can also get the drilling costs down. And that, and that would be great as well. Um, there, there I'd, I'd see a higher chance. And there, I'd, I'd, I'd like to learn more what do we need to do in order to get those well, costs down? Well, let me let me respond on that because um, Eva's investors include BP and Chevron. It is a drilling cost play. You're absolutely right, but actually those costs have come down because of a horizontal drilling and so on. That's actually what enables. These are very very long uh, boreholes. It's nothing to do with Elon Musk is is you know is trying to do tunneling. Uh, maybe should talk to Transport for London, where I used to be on the board, but it's nothing to do with drilling and boring for, for, for geothermal. And it is about drilling costs. And it is a play that says, if you can use all the technologies developed recently and automate, then yes, we ought to be able to hit some very interesting price points. By the way, we're already there, or the company is already there on heat, for heat. So for electricity, because it's lower temperature. Yeah, but I'd say forget the electricity part. Focus totally on the heat. Uh, and the question is, uh, um, what does it need to really scale it up uh, in time? Okay. I'm uh, happy to follow up on that conversation. All right. Well, so let, let's. Uh, so we got good luck on the first one, but some interest and maybe even some positivity on the second one. And what about and the these? Third one, yeah. The third one is an absolute must. 
I don't believe in hydrogen trucks at all. I know that there's still some around here in Germany who believe in it, but uh, this will be uh, basically, we need large scale, directly on the high voltage grid located uh, 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 filling stations, I would call them, uh, for electricity driven trucks, uh, uh, so battery trucks. And, um, and how do we basically then have the situation that once drivers need to make their pause because of uh, regulation by labor law, um, uh, and that half hour that he needs to do his pause needs to be the half hour where the additional 400 kilometers are yeah. on that truck. Yeah. And, 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 and the, anything we can do to get that done, I'm, I'm in it. Uh, and uh, I would okay. uh, happily uh, uh, change any laws that we need to get that done. Well, that's, that's not the response I expected. It's very welcome because um, EcoPragma, the business that I'm working building, is developing exactly that sort of charging network for the heaviest freight, exactly the thesis that says you have to stop anyway because of working time directives. And if we can connect to the transmission grid, this is going to be so much easier and more efficient than hydrogen. But I had read sort of too many stories about um, networks of hydrogen fueling stations and how many they're supposed to be in Germany. I was not expecting that answer, but I'm very, very heartened by it. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, it, it always takes a while until everyone in Germany accepts uh, the pure logic of efficiency, and we, that is uh, heat pumps, it's electric cars, and it'll be electric trucks as well. Well, it's interesting because I would have thought Germany should be in the forefront of understanding the laws of physics, but apparently in politics, even the laws of physics take some time to, per to percolate through the system, but I'm pleased that in the end they do. <laughs> well, there's this nice saying of Mark Twain, apparently. It's hard to convince people from uh, 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 another thing if their living depends on the other one. True. But, you know, we're out of time. I'm going to stop you there for two reasons. One is we're out of time. The other is I don't want you to say anything that your team then comes back and says, oh, we need to edit this out or edit that out because uh, uh, because the Secretary of State has said some things he, he probably regrets or might regret. So we're going to stop it there. But it is always such an enormous pleasure to speak with you. Um, and uh, I, I thank you for your um, good natured response to my, you know, quite sort of insistent questioning. But I think we it's the best way to actually surface these issues and grapple them to the ground. So I really appreciate your um, your willingness to do that with me here today. Uh, it's always great to talk to you and uh, it's great to be on this show. I mean, uh, uh, this podcast is really uh, the high class the, uh, of, 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 of energy podcasts and I'm honored to be here. Well, you're very, very kind about it. Um, and so my, my final thought is I very much look forward to the time when we could be doing something like this face to face, hopefully in the near future. Minister Patrick, thank you so much. Michael, it's always a pleasure. Well, Secretary of State, as I now know, I shouldn't call you perhaps minister, but Secretary well, no, 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 no. That's Patrick. Fine. <laughs> I'm still Patrick. Still Patrick. I know. I know. Very good. Thanks so much. So that was Patrick Greichen, Secretary of State in the German Ministry for the Economy and Climate Action. Next week, there'll be two episodes of Cleaning Up. In the first, we'll be making a special announcement and introducing a guest with whom we'll be working over coming seasons. And then on Wednesday, 
my guest will be Robert Llewellyn. Now, many of you might know him as Crichton in Red Dwarf, but others will know him as the founder and co-CEO of The Fully Charged Show. So please join me on Monday for a special announcement show, and then on Wednesday for a conversation with Robert Llewellyn. Cleaning Up is brought to you by the Liebreich Foundation and the Gilardini Foundation.